what I want to do today is to um, pick up a very powerful story from the Old Testament. So again, if you're new, uh, the Bible's in two, two halves. Well, it's actually in three-thirds. It's like two-thirds is the first bit, Old Testament, which is really the journey of Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, the second bit, the New Testament, is, is really around the life of Jesus uh, and the beginnings of the church, of which you know we're a part now, 2,000 years on, uh, but it's all there. And uh, the Bible is an amazing book. Uh, it's the most popular book in the world, has been for a long time. Uh, it's the number one bestseller. Uh, written over a period of 1,500 years of history, 40 separate authors, poets, kings, uh, 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 doctors, people from all sorts of different backgrounds, uh, 750,000 words, three-quarters of a million words, not exactly a sort of a trashy read that you just have in the downstairs toilet. It's a pretty hefty book, uh, can be there, uh, translated into 2,000 separate languages. When you look at Shakespeare's works, only translated into 60 languages. That's the impact of this book called the Bible. 44 million copies of it sold every year and one million copies of it given away every month. Often when you read a passage from the Old Testament, it has an amazing resonance with a passage in the New Testament. Uh, And that's what we're going to touch on a little bit today. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament. There are some challenges. Uh, Sometimes we can look at some of the things that God seemed to get up to and authorise in the Old Testament, very different to what Jesus said in the New Testament. But this is one God, one story, one big story, and one tremendous big heart for humanity. There are difficult bits to understand, and a lot of people like to say that the Bible contradicts itself. It kind of argues with itself. Well, sometimes it can appear that way, but the problem is usually that the Bible contradicts us. You know, that's normally where people have the most problems with it because we read stuff and it makes uncomfortable reading particularly when you look around the life of Jesus this fabulous one-off person who shines heaven onto earth it sometimes you can read it and it it makes us feel a little bit imperfect and I think maybe it's meant to do that but the good news is that there is a way through that there is a way to be set free and to be forgiven and to become more and more like Jesus Mark Twain famously said it's not the things in the Bible that I can't understand that trouble me it's the things that I can understand amazing So, we're going to look at two passages today. We're going to look um, at a passage in 2 Samuel um, around the story of a guy called Mephibosheth, which was not easy for me to say. And uh, we're going to offer that up to the famous announcement of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, when he arrived and he set out what he was all about. And we'll see as we go into those two passages, they are amazingly similar in terms of the emphasis of what was going on. A couple of years ago, I led a project on the Calais Jungle Migrant Camp. Uh, It became a very large project. I didn't intend it to. Uh, For me, it was a very personal response. Um, I I saw, as probably you did, and most people did, the the, uh, image, that shocking image of that body of that boy washed up on a beach. Um, and, and, and I was immensely gripped by it, probably because um, I've got two boys that are not white, and uh, they looked a lot like my boys. 
And uh, so it was deeply personal. And, uh, and really, to cut a very long story short, story short, I ended up in the heart of the Calais camp for, for two, uh, over a two-year period. But we were there with a permanent base for, for six months. And I learnt so much about undeserved kindness at that time. I, I understood a little bit more about the heart of God as we were working with, with terribly rejected people. And uh, people who shared their meals with us. Uh, many times I was in the tent of an Afghan community eating food that they prepared for themselves but wanted to share with us. And it, and it was, I mean, I could stand him for hours and tell you some of the stories of what happened there. But the reason why I reference that today at the start of what I want to say is uh, an expression which is actually, it's, it's an old um, First Nation American Indian expression that was uh, uh, I came across while we were in Calais and it really became a soundtrack to everything that we're doing and it was this is what it was. When you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. Very challenging, isn't it? When you have more than you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. There's a great deal that people want to say uh, right now about strengthening borders, uh, building walls. Uh, and in all of that, in all of the subjects around it, it's very complex. We're not going to talk politics today. But I, I was interviewed many times through our time in Calais because what we were doing was quite high profile. The national media picked it up in quite a big way. And I was interviewed a lot about those very, very complex issues and I, I found an awful lot of very uh, suspect information, um, fake news, that expression that we've all grown to know and love since America swapped its first black president for its first orange president and uh, you know and, and I, I really engage with some of those things and I guess because I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm married to a black woman, I have my children are a dual heritage, I, I detest racism in every form and I came across it so many times and I understood it and I even saw it in the church in, in, in certain places and I, I, I learned that that, that through that period of my life, that it, it is not the church's job to, to means test people and to work out whether we consider that whether or not they deserve our help. It is our job as the church of Jesus Christ to freely give as we have freely received. That is our responsibility. That is our job. Why? Because it is right in the heart of the message of Jesus, the gospel, the word gospel literally means good news, good news to the poor, as we come on to in a second. Our motivation must flow from that deep sense of gratitude that we have received this extravagant grace from God. And I, I don't know where any of us would be without it, to be, to be really honest. You know, I, I know I would be profoundly lost if I hadn't had, had that experience where I, 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 I got to taste the forgiveness of God for, and suddenly you know, the, the things that I'd done wrong in my life, the things that I deeply regretted were suddenly expunged in a moment. And, and that is what happens when someone comes to Christ. It's not that they sort of get God or get religion or become part of a God squad or a Jesus freak or whatever. You know, It's not about any of that. It's about coming to a place where the grace and the mercy and the undeserved kindness of God suddenly invades our life. It doesn't mean that we understand all the questions, we don't understand all the answers, all the questions. Uh, it just means we get to taste something of what God always wanted us to live in. 
So, with that as a bit of a back cloth, uh, let's look at these two verses. I love the way the Bible contrasts this extreme grace with the sort of bland religious rules that some of us have been saddled with for years, decades, some of us. It's so different to religion. It's, it, it's almost, you know, you can't hold the two things together. What Jesus talked about and what religion offers are so polar opposites. Uh, and yet people think Jesus was a religious leader. You know, it's, it's really ironic, to be honest, when you look at the type of things that he did. This is what it says in Romans in a, a, a wonderful translation or paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, which I love. And uh, this is what it says. Check this one out. All that passing laws against sin did was to produce more lawbreakers. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Some people like to say the Bible is irrelevant. I don't think so. That's pretty current to me. You know, that's what we need. That is the answer to our fear, to our anxiety, to our sense of worthlessness to that sense of being affected by the world to the point where we get dismantled emotionally, psychologically. The world is a sick place. But if we can get to grips with this, we get to understand that it's broken because people have rejected God. And if we get reconnected with God, the world starts to change. It's not rocket science. It's difficult because it requires humility, but it's not complicated. Even a snapshot of Jesus, even a passing glance, even a flick read through some of the stories that Jesus, uh, some of the accounts of the things that Jesus got up to, reveals this heart of of unparalleled goodness towards people with um, very questionable back catalogues. Jesus always seemed to gravitate, have you noticed that? always seemed to gravitate to people with chronic need, whether that was physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, materially, whatever it was. Jesus was found among those people. Why? Because he said, if you've seen God, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he was doing was taking the image of God and like throwing a reflection of it onto the streets of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. Very powerful the way Jesus lived. So we're going to look at an extreme, extravagant grace encounter hidden in the pages of the Old Testament. A story that is beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's not very often talked about, although I talk about it a lot because I think it encapsulates something of what the heart of God is all about. Let me just put a bit of a context uh, uh, for you. Um, it, It starts with a guy called King Saul, uh, king Saul is the king of Israel, but, um, but his house has fallen. Uh, his empire, his kingdom has fallen because he has rejected God through an abuse of power. Uh, God's spirit, God's blessing has been taken off him because he is actually causing havoc across the kingdom, across the people of Israel, because of the bad choices that he has made. And this guy called David, his star is rising. And uh, for those of you who heard me at the NBC, not the last time, but the time before, I talked about David the giant killer. You know, this amazing story in the Bible where Jesus kind of slews or slays? Slews? 
slays a nine foot giant and uh, what I talked about was how David was known as a giant killer because of that story but actually at 10 years old David had to deal with another giant and it was called the giant of rejection and that's another story for another day but David is a totally different character to Saul. Saul is a, is a megalomaniac, he's He's spiritually unraveled. He's got all kinds of stuff going on in his life. And David is a totally different kind of individual. You've got one on the way up and one on the way down. And as a, 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 while this feud is going on, David's grandson, this guy called Mephibosheth, he is badly injured by being dropped as an infant by his carer. And he is disabled, basically, in both feet. The Bible talks about that. And... Uh, Sometime later, uh, <coughs> excuse me, David is installed as the king and he sends for Mephibosheth, who is understandably nervous um, because it was the custom of the new king to remove all trace of the previous king's dynasty. Okay, so, you know, he's vulnerable because he's got a disability, uh, but more importantly, he's the grandson of the, the old king. Okay, now suddenly the new king's arrived and he gets summoned. Now that's not, that don't sound like great news, you know, as far as he's concerned. So let's pick it up. This is what happens. This is the story from the Bible, the account from the Bible. King David asked, is there anyone left from the family of Saul to whom I can show some kindness? Ziba told the king, yes, there is. Jonathan's son, lame in both feet. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, came before David and bowed deeply, abasing himself, honouring David. David spoke his name, Mephibosheth. Yes, sir, don't be frightened, said David. I'd like to do something special for you in memory of your father, Jonathan, who was his best mate. Okay, that's the context. To begin with, I'm returning to you all the properties of your grandfather, Saul. Furthermore, from now on, you'll take all your meals at my table. Shuffling and stammering, not looking him in the eye, Mephibosheth said, Who am I that you pay attention to a stray dog like me? David then called Ziba, Saul's right-hand man, and told him, Everything that belonged to Saul and his family I've handed over to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants will work his land and bring in the produce, provisions, uh, the prob- pro- produce and provisions for your master's grandson. All that my master the king has ordered his servant, answered Ziba, Ziba, Ziba <laughs> your servant will surely do. And Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the royal family. Wow, what a story. What a story that is. When God described King David as a man after his own heart, which he absolutely did, it was moments like this that I think he probably had in mind. David, the giant killing te- teenager, very powerful individual, very capable, capable individual, became king at about 30. He went on to make some awful mistakes as an adult, awful mistakes after this event. He made some terrible mistakes. He'd seen the power of God and the glory of God and the, experienced the love of God at very close quarters. But only two chapters later, I don't know how long that is in the timeline, but only two chapters later, David breaks over half the Ten Commandments in one hit in a, 
horrendous moral failure, a moral collapse, a, a catastrophically bad decision that almost finished him off. But, but this is David at his very best, taking a, a colossal political and personal risk. That's what's going on here. It is a massive risk that David is taking in order to help a disabled guy who is seriously expecting the worst. So why did he do it? Well, because he understood grace. He understood what it was to receive the undeserved kindness of God. He knew how to give it away to others, but he also knew how to receive it for himself. We, we need both. We need to be able to do both of those things. We need to understand that we love because we are first loved. I don't believe that it is possible for us to function as the human beings that God intended us to function until we understand who we truly are in God's eyes. And lots of us don't know that. People out... We understand that people on the outside probably don't get it. The people inside the church don't get it either. We sometimes fail to realize that we are completely unique. We are totally loved. That there is nothing that we can do or say or think that will any way discredit us from receiving the love of the Father. Nothing. Or, opposite to that, there's nothing we could do to earn it more than what we already receive it. We are completely, totally, 100% loved, accepted, forgiven and restored by God as Father. It is a tremendous reality when we start to live like that. Now, please, I'm not standing up here as a self-appointed expert. Okay, I am on this journey, the same with everybody else in this room and outside this room. But I believe that this is the key to it. David knew how to build a longer table, not a higher fence. Because he understood what grace was. He understood what undeserved kindness was all about. Okay, so now we're going to fast forward about a millennium. Okay, that was quick, wasn't it? A thousand years uh, to the arrival of Jesus and to this huge moment where Jesus enters the synagogue, the religious epicenter in Nazareth, which was his hometown. It wasn't his birth town. Uh, but it was his hometown. That's the place where people knew his his backstory. They're the people who knew his family. They're the people who knew where he had come from and how he had grown up. There are many, many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah. The Messiah really was this idea that God would vindicate his name on the earth, that there would be a champion from heaven that would come and would restore the kingdom of Israel, would fulfill all the prophecies and all the law that was given to the ancient patriarchs, that there was this moment coming, this impending moment where literally heaven would fall onto the earth and it would be around the Messiah. So, The prophecies are there, particularly in Isaiah, which we'll look at in a second. But a lot of the messianic prophecies, a lot of the predictions of the Old Testament, as they looked into the horizon and they started to understand, as God started to speak, they started to get an idea of what Messiah would look like. Some of the things that he would say, some of the people that he would hang out with, some of the places that would become significant for him. 
many prophecies talked about the Messiah coming from the line of David. Literally from the lineage of David, that he would be an ancestor in that sense. Although he was the son of God, the other part of his family would come through the line of David. Bethlehem, the town where he was born, was called David's city. Blind Bartimaeus, who Jesus restored his sight in a phenomenal creative miracle on the street just outside Jericho, called out to him, son of David... Have mercy on me. Fourteen times in the New Testament, Jesus is called the son of David. There is amazing synergy between these two characters. So, let's read from the Bible again. This is what happened. Jesus goes into the synagogue, and this is what took place. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. So don't forget, the great Isaiah scroll, the prophet, this messianic predictor. So much of the prophecies around the Messiah is locked in this book. Jesus, of all people, picks up, of all scrolls, the book of Isaiah. And it was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Remember the story of David and Mephibosheth? Okay, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, if you look at the thinking around the ancient synagogues in the time that this took place, the archaeology, the views that people have, there is this suggestion that there is a seat at the front of the synagogue called the seat of Moses. The expression the seat of Moses means a number of other things as well, but there is an idea, there is a strong tradition that says that there was a seat that was right at the front of the synagogue called the seat of Moses and it was not taken up by anybody because the idea was that when the Messiah comes, he will take the seat of Moses. Now, is it possible that Jesus wrote from, read from that scroll and then sat down in that seat. Is that possible? Maybe it is. Because what it says is this. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them. So there's a break here. Okay, So he's read the scroll and he sat down. But he hasn't yet spoken. He hasn't really begun to preach in that sense. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Then there's this classic. Okay, this is absolutely classic. They've all heard Jesus. Okay, they've all watched people literally spellbound at what he has said. This incredible announcement, this re working of, well, not, not, not a re- reciting of the messianic prophecy and effectively saying, it's me, it's me. This is fulfilled in, in front of you, literally. I am the Messiah. He is claiming to be the Messiah. <laughs> the last bit says, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. <laughs> you see, because he's in Nazareth. He's in Nazareth. In other words, I think they're saying like, you know, nice talk like that. 
but weren't you knocking up bookcases and kitchen cabinets in your father's carpenter shop only two weeks ago? So, you know, come on, let's have a reality check here. I don't know what you think, but that's what I think is going on. They, they're looking at what's taking place, they're loving what he said, and then they're going, mm, hold on a minute. So, it's kind of like Jesus performs a sort of a, a hard reset. And he, he like winds it back to God's original intention. You see, because there's been a few centuries of drift, okay, to say the least. Okay, so the people of God, they know they're the people of God, but they kind of messed up like, like catastrophically and over and over again, like for generations. They've ended up in exile, then God's brought them back. God is continually showing favor, and they're continually abandoning God. They're continually rejecting everything that was fundamental to them, to their history as a people. And God shows amazing patience and mercy and kindness over and over again. Like not just once, but like many, many times. And now Jesus arrives and it's, he, he does this factory default hard reset in, in saying the things that he said. He's actually restating, this is the heart of God. This is what God is all about. It's not about religious rituals and buildings. All of those things are part of an old system. But there's something new coming. This is the new day. This is the beginning of the new era where no longer God's blessing and presence and the ability for people to connect with him is restricted to just this nation called Israel. Now the door is flung wide open with the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus sets out the purpose of God and his heart for the underdog right in the faces of the religious elite. It it, it really is an electric encounter. And sometimes when we just read it, and particularly if, you know, we've been Christians a long time, you know, I've been a Christian a long time, and you read it, you say, oh yeah, I kind of know the Luke 4 thing, it's, you know, Isaiah 61, you know, we're sort of familiar with the words. But then you get a fresh look and you go, yeah, but... But, but what's actually going on here? What would it have felt like to see this kind of young sort of upstart, this guy who's getting a bit of a following around the street? You know, he talks like a rabbi, he's getting respected. But whoa, whoa, let's just hold fire on this Messiah thing. That's not normal to read from the Isaiah scroll and then to say, it's me. That's, that's uncommon. But for some reason, Jesus gets the reaction, and it's not universally negative, to say the least. People are starting to see it. There's a story around an old guy called Nicodemus, and he's, he's one of these guys, okay? And he goes to see Jesus, and he said, nobody could do what you're doing without being sent from God. Again, that's not really what would have been said. So there is an amazing synergy, that's what I'm saying, between these two passages. The actions of King David, and then a thousand years later, the stated intention of Jesus. Both revealing this tremendous heart of God towards each person, each one of us. After centuries of waiting, suddenly there is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy, the new era in God's dealing 
with people. So, what does it mean? What do these two accounts really mean to us that are 2,000 and 3,000 years old, respectively? That's quite a long time. But, as we said a moment ago, there is an amazing sense that the Bible is very current in the way that it describes us, our need, our predicament. You read the passage that we read from Romans in the message, and I don't know what you feel, but I read that and I go, yeah, yeah, that's me. You know, I need that. It's a timeless reminder. Both of these accounts, they are a timeless reminder of the heart of God towards us today. His willingness to, to welcome us, to invite us. That's what this series is all about, about being invited. The great invitation to receive his undeserved kindness and his unending grace. If you've never experienced that today, uh, or up until today, if you've never experienced that, if you are in that sometimes wonderful but slightly uncomfortable sense of having your heart tugged a bit, (laughs) you know, I mean, this is a school hall. We're not in some mystical building. There's nothing really going on here that should sort of ransack us emotionally. So if you're feeling that sense of, I think that's what I need, well, you probably do need that. And the invitation is got your name on it. It's coming your way. It's the invitation to respond, to receive, to belong, to join, to follow. That's what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not about going through a religious set of rituals. It used to be that, but that's not what's in the New Testament of the Bible. That's not what Jesus was particularly interested in. So I would love to pray, and I'm going to pray in a moment, for I'm going to pray a prayer that I'm going to invite you to join in with. And if you need to step over the line into a faith in Jesus for the first time, this is absolutely for you. But if you feel that you've been a bit of a drifter, there's a lot of drift in the Bible, a lot of drifters, and you think, yeah, I'm actually a bit of a drifter. You know, I've had an encounter but I've sort of gone back to try and fit that with that. You know, that's kind of what we do sometimes. So it's an opportunity as well to, to get right back into the purposes of God. It's not that God ever lost you. It's that you probably let go of him somewhere. And it's an opportunity and an invitation to just go back and pick up what you left behind. But one more verse from Isaiah before we do that. Beautiful, beautiful verse in Isaiah 55. All who are thirsty come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy. And eat without money and without cost. You remember what David said to Mephibosheth, you will always eat at this table. You will always eat at the king's table. The Christian life is about living your life at the king's table. Honestly, it is. That's what it is all about. Yeah, there are tough questions to answer. You know that, I know that. 
We live in a difficult, complex, complicated world right now. There's a lot of questions. But as Mark Twain said, it's not the bits I don't understand that trouble me. It's the bits I do. Let me pray. Let's close our eyes, shall we? Be really good to create a moment for some people here that want to take a step. It's an internal step, but it's a very profound step. And if it's for the first time, that's absolutely wonderful. If it's for the second time or the 20th time, that's wonderful too. And I'm going to pray a prayer that I'm going to invite you to repeat on the inside privately. And at the end of that, I'm just going to ask you to stick your hand up just while I'm looking, just so I can not embarrass you, but I can just pray that God would seal what he has done in your life today. Here's the prayer. My Father, I choose to receive your love and forgiveness today. I choose to step towards you, not away from you. I want to be a follower of Jesus and a child of God. I ask you to forgive me, to set me free, and to fill me with your power. Thank you that that is possible today because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just while everyone's quiet and just with their eyes closed, just for a moment, if you prayed that prayer with me today the first time, for the first time, or you've prayed it before, but you are praying it to get back right with God, I just want you to raise your hand where you are. Just do that right now. Okay, Father, I want to thank you for the sense of your breath upon us today, Lord, your presence, the very presence of heaven on earth. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope for people like us, that there is forgiveness and a route through. Thank you, Lord, that you can bring healing into our brokenness. And I pray, Lord, that nobody would leave today with any doubt that they are profoundly loved by you. And that the opportunity for a clean slate is there every day. Because of the flow of life and love that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.